0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. Now, if you're listening to this, that means you've made at least one good decision today, so kudos. This episode of The Imposter is the second one in our series on mating. And today we're going to be talking about different mechanisms that organisms use to mate. What do I mean when I say mechanisms of mating? There's a lot of M's, I know. But quite literally, the actual mechanics of copulation. Or, for you visual learners out there like myself, how a hot dog and donut hole come together and make tiny delicious donut dogs. I really do wish donut dogs was a real thing. Someone out there who's listening, you work on that, alright? Anyway. Without any more horrible metaphors, I'm going to go get some Krispy Kreme. But you all stay put and listen to the intro. So yeah, you do that thing. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know, it's about how science Welcome back, everyone, and thanks again for tuning in to episode number 29 of The Imposter. It is I, your host, Amir Fogel, and as I mentioned in the introduction, today we're going to be taking a look at the different ways plants and animals mate with one another. Now, I know what everyone's thinking. Amir, we all spent our Saturday nights the same way during our youth. We know all about the birds and the bees. Well, my dear lovely porn-watching listeners, I've got news for you. Not all copulation is done the old-fashioned way, you know, plug in the socket and whatever. Nay, nay fair people. In fact, there are many different mechanisms for mating and passing on genes utilized by the diverse inhabitants of this planet. From binary fission and horizontal gene transfers in bacterium, to the fertilizations of plants, to the literal fusing of bodies found in some deep-sea fish species. And trust me, that last one only works for those species. I tried it on my girlfriend, and she was not impressed at all. Period. Anyway, the point is, there's a lot to learn about sex that your middle school PE teacher didn't tell you. And with that, I reckon we should probably get into it, so let's start at the micro level with our bacterial friends. are quite familiar with our own mating mechanism. Two individuals, some sperm, an egg, the hopes of transferring genetic information to a new generation, and all that jazz. But as I've alluded to, this two-partner strategy of gene transfer is not the only way to get things done. In fact, it would be rude to flaunt our sexuality at our bacterial chums, as they can't really experience the proverbial bedtime quidditch game we have all come to love. But before we dive into bacterial reproduction, we should define a term I might use a few times in this section. Now, some of you might already be familiar with it, so awesome. But for those that aren't, the term is prokaryotes. Prokaryotes are single-celled organisms that lack both a nucleus and other internal structures a great example is bacteria hence defining it for the section on bacteria and actually the Greek translation for prokaryote is actually literally before nucleus so there you go now as I have previously mentioned bacteria don't multiply through the conventional mating mechanisms we know instead they pass on their genetic information in a few different ways The most common way for bacteria to actually produce a new cell is through an asexual process known as binary fission. And asexual meaning no partners are needed. So, when we talk about binary fission, let's imagine we have a bacterial cell. Now, this cell will store its genetic information, all them chromosomes and whatnot, in a form of what looks like a clump of spaghetti. The cell will then make an exact copy of that clump of spaghetti, and once that copy is complete, the cell will start to grow until it reaches probably around, let's say, double its size. And once it reaches the acceptable size, the cell will then split in two, creating a new genetically identical cell, for lack of a better term. This is, in a nutshell, binary fission. If you're looking for a borderline, semi-not-really-accurate pop-cultural visualization, think of that mutant in the third X-Men movie, The Last Stand. I know, I already regret using this reference. But this mutant can make duplicates of itself by literally pulling itself apart to create an exact and identical copy. Now, the problem with binary fission is that it doesn't really give much genetic diversity. Actually any genetic diversity. You might be wondering why a lack in genetic diversity is important in the first place. Well, let's say we have the original bacteria making duplicates of itself, replicating, 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 until you've got an army of bacteria passing on the same genetic information. This same genetic information, including genetic weaknesses. So if the original bacterium has a sensitivity to, say, penicillin, for example, all of its clones that make up the army of bacteria also share that same sensitivity to penicillin. And if that army is exposed to penicillin, the entire army and its cohorts will die quick and easy because all of them clones share that genetic weakness. Don't feel too bad for bacteria, though they have a few crafty ways to get around this problem that fall under a process known as horizontal gene transfer, or HGT for short. Horizontal gene transfer is a method in which prokaryotes can amass more genetic diversity. So instead of passing on information from generation to generation, HGT allows bacteria to pass on genetic information in the same generation from cell to cell and even from different species of bacteria to one another. One way to think of horizontal gene transfer is like the infamous villains from Star Trek called the Borg or the Collective. For you non-trekkies out there, I'm going to suggest quickly googling the phrase Borg Assimilation Process to get a better idea of what I'm talking about, but basically The Borg convert existing species into their own, ripping off appendages and replacing them with robotic ones. The same analogy could be used for the Cybermen from the show Doctor Who. And both of those are kind of simplified versions of what HGT is, but we'll go into a bit more detail in a minute. Now, this ability to absorb new genes allows for bacteria and other prokaryotes To adapt quickly to their environments. So back to that penicillin example from before. A bacterium resistant to penicillin could transfer that resistant gene to other bacteria. Allowing for the integration of a penicillin resistant gene into the receiving bacterium's DNA. And then it can be replicated and replicated and replicated. This is how antibiotic resistance has become so prevalent today. Sidebar. If you're not aware, last week, a woman's death in the U.S. made headlines as she died from an infection that was resistant to all available forms of antibiotics. There's a link to the news report on the blog, and I would check it out because this is kind of a big deal, but in the same token, a long time coming. Alright, so now I'm going to give you listeners a bit of a choice. The next bit is me going into more detail about the three different ways horizontal gene transfer can occur. If you don't care and you want to skip to the bit about plants and animals, I'm not offended, just go to around 19 minutes. If you are interested, stay where you are, you're doing great. And if you aren't interested, but you're too lazy to switch, this is clearly pre-recorded, so I I don't know what you were thinking, but it sucks to be you, frankly. (laughs) All right. So, as I was saying, there are three different ways that HGT occur. Transformation, transduction, and conjugation. Transformation is the scooping up and integration of chromosomal remains from one bacterial cell to another. The process starts when a bacterial cell has died and begins to fall apart. As the cell deteriorates, its chromosomes break apart into floating pieces. These floating pieces of chromosome will linger until they come into contact with what is called a competent cell, which is basically a bacterial cell that is able to undergo this process of transformation. The floating bits of chromosome then attach themselves to the competent cells outer wall, subsequently wiggle through that wall, and make their way into the cell. Now, once inside this new cell, the little bit of chromosome will actually fully integrate itself into the cell. So, when that bacterial cell decides to replicate in the future, the newly added bit of chromosome will also be duplicated in any new subsequent cells. In other words, imagine you have two cakes made out of jello, they both have fruit inside. One has oranges in it, and we'll say the other contains blueberries. In this example, the jello cake is the bacterial cell, and the fruit bits inside are its chromosome. Now, picture that asshole friend of yours, and don't tell me you don't have one because everyone has one. That asshole friend comes up behind and smashes the orange jello cake, sending bits of jello bacteria and orange chromosome everywhere. Some of the orange bits land on the nearby blueberry jello cake, which results in orange chromosome bits sinking into the center of the blueberry jello cake. Now you have an orange and blueberry jello cake. I know what you're thinking. Who the hell makes blueberry orange jello cake? Commies, that's who, damn it. I got nothing else aside from that. But the point is, the blueberry jello has integrated the orange fully like a competent bacterial cell can integrate other genetic information from dead bacterial cells. That is essentially transformation. Conjugation is the transfer of a plasmid from one cell to another. For those wondering, because I certainly was, a plasmid is a double-stranded, circular-in-shape DNA molecule found in bacterial cells. And we have to distinguish these are separate from the bacterial chromosome. Now plasmids generally contain fairly specific genes. So take for example antibiotic resistance. Alright, now for you visual learners, let's picture a bacterial cell as a shoebox. And inside this shoebox we have something that looks like a clump of spaghetti. That's gonna be the bacterial chromosomes. Now, what you also have in this shoebox is something that looks like a small bagel, and that is going to be our plasmid. All right. So the conjugation process actually starts when this circular plasmid, this bagel, tells the cell to produce a long protruding tube called a conjugation pilus. This pilus then attaches itself to a nearby cell. Then in a truly science-fiction way, the conjugation pilus will pull this newly attached cell closer and closer and closer like a tractor beam. When the pilus has pulled the lassoed-in cell close enough, our plasmid, again this, this bagel in a shoebox, will begin to replicate itself and literally send its copy through the pilus tube into this attached cell. So picture our bagel creating a clone bagel and then sending it into another shoebox through a toilet roll tube. Now to finish the job of conjugation, the attaching pilus or tube will break off and the end result being a successful transfer of genetic material from one cell to another. So again this is one way that bacteria can adapt in antibiotic resistance by having a bacterial cell with a resistant gene reach out to a neighboring cell and seemingly update its DNA to be resistant. There is actually a bit more to this process, more terms and exceptions, that are detailed in links on the blog, so if you are interested, there is a wonderful YouTube I posted that explains all of this fairly well, so go ahead and check it out. Finally, we come to transduction. So, transduction is the transfer of bacterial DNA using viral infections. The virus is called a bacteriophage, which is a virus that exclusively infects bacteria. That's just kind of what they're called. Now, these viruses, or bacterial phages, look kind of like the aliens from War of the Worlds. You know that wonderful piece of cinema with Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning? Inspired, of course, by the infamous H.G. Wells radio broadcast. For those that aren't familiar, the War of the World aliens have big heads that sit on top of many muscular, wavy tentacles. This is kind of what bacterial phages look like. Alright, so a very simplified explanation of what happens in transduction is the phage's tentacles latch onto a bacterial cell the virus then injects its DNA directly into the host bacteria. So depending on the type of bacterial phage, two outcomes can then occur. One type of bacterial phage is called lytic, which results in the virus replicating its own DNA inside the bacteria, taking over the cell completely. The other type is called a lysogenic bacterial phage, which takes less of an invasion of the body snatcher's approach. Instead, they insert themselves into the chromosome of the bacterial cell and just kind of chill out there for a bit. The lysogenic viruses will lay dormant in the bacteria, and then when it comes time for the infected bacterial cell to replicate, the lysogenic phage will be replicated along with the rest of the cell. Pretty neat, huh? I don't know. So yeah. That's pretty much transduction in a nutshell, but check out the blog for some more detail. Now the reason there are three different mechanisms for horizontal gene transfer is because not all bacterial cells are built for the same processes. Some have the binding mechanisms on their cell walls for transformation, while others contain the plasmids for conjugation. And certain viruses only infect certain types of bacteria for transduction. So as they say, it's good to have options, even if you're microscopic. And in the case of bacterial reproduction, having those options is paramount to survival. At the end of the day, all of this is just kind of a long-winded way of saying that bacteria don't have sex in that P-in-the-V kind of way. So, with that in mind, let's move on to plant and animal reproduction. So, we just finished talking about some of the asexual ways in which bacteria can reproduce. Now, we're going to talk about some sexual mechanisms. You know that participatory kind of reproduction? I know you know what I'm talking about, you salty dog. (laughs) Alright, so let's start with a look at our flora friends. Plants are fascinating because during their life cycle, they experience something called Alteration of generations. This is basically a fancy way of saying that plants switch between producing both asexually via meiotic division, which is the division of cells, as well as sexually via gametophytes or the old spore and egg way. Now, as we just covered asexual reproduction in bacteria, I'm not really going to go into it. But if you do want to learn more about asexual reproduction in plants, Please go and check out the blog for some extra information because I put it up just for you. You know what I'm saying? All right. Anyway, seed-bearing plants, also called angiosperms, reproduce using the buddy system. Hey, all right. To understand sexual reproduction in plants, though, we have to understand a little bit about plant anatomy. Sexual reproducing plants are hermaphroditic, meaning they have both female and male genitals. If you're near the internet, search for an image of flower anatomy. If you're not near the internet, however, hold out your hand in front of you and make three prongs with your fingers. You should have your pointer, middle, and ring finger out and your thumb and pinky folded in. So your hand should look like a trident. Congratulations! Your hand is now a flower. Also. That dude sitting next to you thinks you look ridiculous. It's true. He told me so before this aired. It's it was weird. Don't 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 worry about it. Alright, so pointer and ring fingers represent the male parts of a flower called the stamen. The stamen is divided into two parts. The top bit, where pollen grains are produced, is called the anther, and the neck of the stamen is called the filament. If anything, Just remember, the stamen is the male reproductive organ, and it's located on the sides. Now we're left with our middle finger, which represents the female reproductive organ called the pistil, spelled I-L, not O-L, by the way. The top bit of the pistil is called the stigma, and it's sticky, like glue, and we'll get to that in a second. The neck is called the style, and the base is the ovule, which is where the ovaries and eggs are located. Again, all you really need to remember is the female reproductive organ is in the center and called the pistil. Awesome. You can put your hands down now. Or keep them up, whatever floats your boat, alright? So the reproduction process starts when the male organs, our stamens, produce male gametophytes, which is essentially sperm. And then these gametophytes are distributed either by insects like bees, or by the hairy legs and bellies of animals that are passing by, or even through wind power. Yay! So through one of these modes or a combination, the gametophytes will find their way to another receptive flower. Now remember how I said the head of the female organ, the stigma, was sticky? Well, the reason is so that these male gametophytes will be able to successfully latch onto the female organ, the pistil. Then, after confirming that the correct gametophytes have landed on the correct pistil and they do this via chemical cues, the male gametophytes will then do that spermy thing and travel down the pistil into the ovule where the eggs are located and fertilize them suckers. This will then, in turn, produce seeds. When the seed is developed and ready to be its own plant, You know, start making a name for itself in the big city of Plantopolis. There are three main ways for plants to disperse their seeds. One way is by making their seeds equipped to be carried away by the wind. A great example of this is with dandelions. Dandelion seeds are those small white feathery balls that were so much fun to kick when you were little, or if you're me, last week. And... Pretty much every time you kick those balls of feathery seeds, you're actually helping out the dispersal of future dandelion plants. So if you happen to be a dandelion enthusiast, you keep kicking away. Another way that seeds are distributed is through the hitchhiker method. This is when seeds attach themselves onto animals with the hope that they will carry the seed to another location. You see, tiny seeds need a strong start So having the possibility of less competition for resources in a different location is a worthy enough risk to take. So, if you've ever had a burr stuck in your clothes or the unfortunate pain of having them stab your feet, the bright side is you're helping a plant find a new home. A stinky addition to the hitchhiking method is the internal hitchhiker, a.k.a. when animals eat seeds and pippity-poop them out later. I would think this is actually pretty good for the seed, as it might get a few more nutrients from the poo, you know, in that fertilizer kind of a way. But hey, what do I know? The last method I came across seems to be a bit less reliable than the first two, because chance seems to play a bigger role in the success of seed growth. You see, animals that harvest seeds to eat over the winter months like birds and squirrels, for example, will bury the seeds either in a tree or underground. Unforeseen circumstances, however, i.e. death, competition, or just kind of forgetting where they put the seeds, can lead to these seeds that were harvested getting a chance to germinate and grow. But again, like I said, this one seems a bit more of an iffy thing to rely on if I was a plant. All right, so final thoughts. I know that over the years, plants have been used as metaphors for sexuality in literature. Cue in Their Eyes Were Watching God. Great book, by the way. I'd like to thank one of my favorite teachers of all time, Ms. Calella, for showing us all that one. So, thank you. But even if you drop the metaphor, plant reproduction really is the ultimate sexual expression. It's out in the open, It can be done solo or with an orgy of partners, and is beautiful in appearance. Okay, so that's a fairly brief overview of the mechanisms behind plant reproduction. All right, So we're gonna move on to the section on animals now, but if you want to know more, like I've said many times, check out the blog. All right, my wonderful listeners, hang in there because we are almost done, I promise. I do realize we haven't had an episode this long in a while, so with that in mind, I'm going to keep this last section brief by giving only one example of animal mating mechanisms. And it will, of course, be an animal in the marine environment because, hey, at the end of the day, it's good to get back to your roots. That said, if you want more examples, check out the blog. So... There's a taxonomic order of bottom-dwelling fish known as loffiforms, though they are more commonly referred to as anglerfish. You might recognize one particular family of anglerfish known as the Black Sea Devil, or by its Latin name, Melanocitidae. This anglerfish had a borderline semi-accurate appearance in the 2003 blockbuster hit Finding Nemo. For your reference, It's the fish with the big teeth and the glowing orb attached to its head. Now, I have to say most things about the life cycle of these fish are fascinating, especially as we don't know much about them because they're deep-sea creatures. But, for a select few of these species in the sea devil family, things really do go all M. Night Shyamalan during mating. It all has to do with the sexual dimorphism of the species, or in other words, The fact that the female sea devils are much larger than the males, though most females don't get much larger than a smartphone, so keep it in perspective. As male and female sea devils mature, their bodies change in very different ways. The smaller males will develop larger eyes and nostrils and will sprout a new pair of teeth that resemble sharp little barbs. The larger eyes and nostrils are because mature males rely on both sight and olfactory cues, such as pheromones, quite heavily to find suitable mates. Meanwhile, female sea devils mature into that mythical image that lurks in the depths of our consciousness. A boxy body with large translucent teeth and a fleshy glowing orb that can dance as if it's a puppet on a string. Upon reaching maturity, it's thought that males begin a race against the clock to either find a mate or meet their maker. When a male does find a female mate, he will use his small barb-like teeth to latch onto the female's body like a leech. The male's mouth will seal and fuse to the female's skin, and gradually, the males will, in a sense, dissolve into the female's having both their skin and blood vessels merged together. They will literally experience the atrophy and decay of their eyes, fins, and a few of their internal organs, because frankly, they don't need them anymore. By the end of this process, all that is left of the male is a small lump of pulsating flesh. I imagine this is kind of like that episode of Family Guy where Chris gets a talking pimple that they become friends and stuff, but I suppose this is a bit more complicated and a bit wetter. That sounds weird. All right, so sure enough, because the two fish are connected internally, the males get access to whatever nutrients the females may have consumed. In return for this fusion, the females get a living, breathing sperm bank permanently attached to them. What a trade-off, right? Now, actually some females have been observed to have multiple males attached to them all at the same time. Alright, so if you weren't already captivated by this, check out this next part. So though this fusion occurs, reproduction is still an external affair. You see, once the females are ready to reproduce, it's thought that she will initiate some hormonal cues that will let the male know to release his sperm into the surrounding water. As the male releases his sperm, the female releases her eggs simultaneously. This kind of mating, where a male attaches himself to a female, is sometimes referred to as parasitic mating. And I would say with good reason, because the males are quite literally living off of the females. That said, in my own personal opinion, I don't think that this is 100% parasitism. It's like, it's like 95%, I would say. And the only reason I say it's not 100 is because the females do get some small benefit from this arrangement. Keyword being small benefit. The only reason I say they do get this benefit is because once a male attaches, they no longer need to expend energy looking for mates. Everything is set and done. So that's a small bit of their life cycle that is taken care of. Alright, so I also want to clarify that this is not the way that every species of anglerfish reproduce. Nay, probably not even most anglerfish. There are species of anglerfish where males are free-swimming and hunt on their own. In fact, there are a few that utilize both mechanisms where they attach to the female and then detach to release sperm. So, yeah. Anyway. This is another kind of mechanism of mating. As there are so many to choose from and we've run out of time, though, I've posted a few more examples of animal mating mechanisms on the blog, so please go and check them out. I feel like I've I've mentioned the blog, like, a lot more than I have in other episodes. But, hey, I guess it's worth looking at? Anyway. That is our show for today, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed it. We are going to continue this series on mating next episode, where we will be going into the motivations of mating in the animal kingdom, which I think is pretty cool. But again, I'm a nerd, and I think a lot of things are pretty cool. So there you go. All right, so as always, a big thank you to everyone for listening Please go and check out the blog, the forward slash. Go and like and share us on Facebook. We really, 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 really appreciate that. My birthday's coming up. Nothing helps like a good share and a good like. Just saying. Um, and also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Keywords, the imposter podcast. Other than that, you can follow us on Twitter at AnotherFogel, that's F-O-G-E-L, and also on SoundCloud. Again, keywords, The Imposter Podcast. Okay, so that is it. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and we will see you next time. Peace out.